Welcome to NextWorks Innovation Talks. Let our podcast inspire you with inside stories and conversations about innovation. I'm today's NextWorks Innovation Talks host, Laurence van Hilligem, and I'm very pleased to introduce Julian Birkinshaw. Julian is an author, a keynote speaker, a professor of strategy and entrepreneurship, and Deputy Dean of Executive Education and Digital Learning at the London Business School. So welcome to our podcast, Julian. Thank you very and much. Maybe you can start off by telling our listeners what you specialize in and what you're most passionate about. So I specialize in helping large organizations to uh, reinvent themselves, to find ways of working more efficiently, more innovatively in today's fast changing world. And in that context, what I'm most passionate about is finding examples of, of individuals, of companies doing really creative things, actually challenging a lot of the traditional ways of working in order to be able to cope with these strange times in which we live. Okay, brilliant. So you work a lot with business leaders at the, the London Business School. And what's the one question that keeps popping up in your courses? What do they struggle with most? So they all hook onto this notion of digital disruption right now. I mean, this is the easiest way to get their interest. And whether this is fear of failure or opportunity, it's a bit of both, I guess. But they all want to know what they might be doing wrong, how they avoid becoming the next Kodak or Nokia. Uh, and they're also desperately keen to find out what the kind of the secrets, if you like, of transformation are. I mean, I literally yesterday was with the chief executive of a large Italian company, you know, and he was saying, we're doing okay, but we're plateauing. Um, there's a bit of complacency creeping in. And I'm trying to figure out what we need to do to sort of to stay ahead of the curve, to make sure that we don't get a little bit stuck. So that's the easiest way, in my view, to kind of have a conversation with a top executive these days. What do you tend to tell them? Because there's absolutely no easy answer no to that answer. question. Exactly. And this is it. This is the almost the fundamental challenge we face in the business school world, for sure. And of course, you know, in the world of advising companies more broadly. Um, I mean, the starting point is I say, look, and they know this, but I have to say it anyway. There are no silver bullets. Right? Don't think for a second that there's any quick fixes. Don't think that a company offering, you know, agile working or transformational leadership or whatever the latest buzzy idea is, don't think for a second that this is going to solve your problem because at best these are tools which help you to work through turning some sense of where you're trying to go into reality. They have to be seen as tools within an entire strategy rather than the answer themselves. And so I will typically say, look, it does start, of course, with you as a leader having a clear point of view about what you're trying to achieve, because obviously that is the starting point. It's never enough, but it's the starting point. And then some combination of what you might call top-down and bottom-up initiatives to help get people across the organization thinking and acting differently. And of course, the top-down stuff involves sometimes huge structural process-type changes, sometimes often some drastic things. But you know that is never going to be the whole solution either. Therefore, the more bottom-up cultural transformation whereby we are getting people across the organization all collectively feeling some responsibility for what the company is trying to do differently that is the means by which we create some enduring change and of course those things i've just laid out in the last minute or two these are, are, are almost generic in other words you know we could have had this conversation 20 years ago and i'd have given you more or less the same story 
So the generic challenge of transformation is the same, but the specifics of how you do it in this current environment obviously are going to vary with the new technologies and the particular situation a company is in. Mm -hmm. You talked about um, top-down and bottom-up. Uh, a change in culture is really the holy grail of change and, and innovation. What are your, maybe your favorite transformation stories? Um, yeah, for sure. So I put these into usually kind of, I guess, three categories, right? One is, one is not even really a fair example, but a lot of startup companies are doing very innovative things in terms of how they work. They have incredibly passionate, innovative cultures. Uh, and when you go to the, the Ubers of this world, it's almost taken for granted that they are doing kind of innovative, transformative stuff. But that's cheating. I mean, you, you can't use the stories of the Ubers and the Airbnbs and the Spotify's to give advice to established companies. So I will always go towards two categories of established companies. The first is the ones which started entrepreneurial and have managed to maintain that agility, that entrepreneurialness. I mean, Amazon is now 600,000 employees around the world. It's, you know, it's more than 20 years old. And yet Amazon still has an incredibly dynamic culture where people still talk about it as if it's day one there. Mm -hmm. So that's one category. And then the second category is, the, in fact, the, the most interesting of the lot, which is big traditional companies who are working very hard with some success at transforming themselves. So the Dutch company that everybody talks about, ING Bank, is one such case. And I'm sure you know that story. I've interviewed the top executives to look at their agile transformation in their Amsterdam head office. That's one. I'm also writing case studies on a couple of other European companies. One is NL, E-N-E-L, a big Italian energy company. Uh, and another is N-G-E-N-G-I-E, -E, the big French energy company, both of which in their own ways are doing some very interesting experiments in trying to reinvent themselves, make themselves more digitally savvy, bringing agile type working methods into the company. So, so those are the type of examples I like the most, where you've got a big established company which is trying to really rethink itself using some of these slightly more entrepreneurially, digitally driven principles. Okay. And so could you give a, a concrete example of what um, NG or, or ING are doing or, or is that a bit difficult for you because I would understand. I mean the, the ING story I'm, for a Dutch audience, I guess you have an international audience, but for a Dutch audience this is a well-known story, but it was really taking the principles of agile working, which is small cross-functional teams, teams working in rapid iterations with their users, with their customers, to take responsibility for both the work they're doing and the consequences of that work. And this is a principle which has been around for a while. It, it came out of the, the software development world 20 years ago. But ING is the biggest established company to embrace that set of principles sort of across the board, not just in their IT functions, but in, in a lot of customer-facing functions as well. So, so that's one example. Um, and then I mentioned NL, the Italian energy company, The essence of their transformation is, on the one hand, essentially moving out of traditional hydrocarbon-based energy and into, into renewables, which, you know, which is about huge resource allocation changes. And indeed, they've gone further than any other energy company I know of, at least amongst the, the major ones. But to make that possible, they've had to adopt this very digitally driven way of working inside the company to get people 
acting and thinking very differently. And, and, and to cut a long story short, they basically blew up their entire information technology department. They basically outsourced you know, most activities onto the cloud. And then they took the remaining activities and divided them up into small pieces and decentralized them into the operating units and put them again into agile teams in order to make them much more fluid, much more responsive, much more innovative. So that's a couple of examples. I mean, I can, I can also give you many others if you'd like to persuade you any of these other angles in more detail. You can give one more, maybe, because I think that's always interesting to, to people listening to, to have really concrete examples. So um, go ahead. So here's one specific example, which is a success with some caveats. The big coffee company called Costa Coffee. Anyone who's been to Britain has seen Costa Coffee. It's alongside Starbucks as one of the biggest coffee restaurants in the world. You know, a couple of years ago, I did a detailed piece of work with them looking at their initiative to create a third generation vending machine. In other words, not you know, going to the barista and getting him to make a cup of coffee for you, but actually to have a really high quality cup of coffee through a machine, which will go into a petrol station or into an office or whatever. And because they knew that the company was quite slow moving, they deliberately created this new coffee machine outside of the traditional organization. So they created one of these external teams. They sort of staffed it up with a bunch of external partners, literally 15 different companies and individuals who did not work for Costa. Uh, they used sort of venture capital-like principles as a means of essentially contracting with these people to give them a share of the upside of the development. And because they were doing it outside the normal strictures of the system, they were able to develop this new product from concept to very full working prototype in less than one year, which in, in the world of product development is is crazy fast. I mean, literally three, four times faster than you'd usually get. So it was their approach was essentially to take a separate team outside the mainstream. The only caveat I'll add is that, of course, because they were working outside, it did take them much longer to pull that working prototype back into the mainstream organization in order to then integrate it with the existing systems and processes. So it's a different story than the other two because it is essentially... Uh, externalizing through a separate team this process of doing things differently rather than doing it through the mainstream. Yeah. One of the biggest challenges is really properly balancing the innovation part with the existing system. Like you say, do you believe that the leaders who manage the day-to-day -day business inside a company should be different than those who are in charge of innovation? And if so, do you think they should need equal decision power? Yes. So, uh, as you say, we're trying to do two things. We're trying to keep the, uh, the ship flying or the ship moving or the airplane flying whilst also kind of refitting it and creating something new at the same time. And we need to make sure that both sides of that divide have equal power. In other words, that we are not just privileging the people who are bringing in today's money at the expense of those who are trying to create something new. It often takes very, very different skills, as we know, to be somebody who's running a, a traditional business as someone who's running a startup. It doesn't necessarily have to be different people. I, I actually believe that there are many senior leaders, and this is one of the reasons why they're well paid, who have that ambidexterity, that sort of skill, if you like, at being able to do mainstream, traditional, control-oriented work 
whilst also being innovative and entrepreneurial and giving people on both sides of that divide, you know, very different instructions, very different degrees of freedom, giving them more tolerance of failure in one case and less tolerance of failure in the other. For me, that is one of the reasons why we need senior leaders to be able to span that divide quite effectively. Mm -hmm. So you already gave a, a brilliant example of the coffee company, but can you give some some more examples of companies and, and leaders who are really great at balancing innovation with the existing system? Well, I'll start with, I'm not saying it's a great example, but I'll start with my own experiences of trying to do this on a day-to-day -day basis at London at Business School, just to, you know, to make sure that we, uh, we don't get stuck at too high a level of abstraction. And my job at London Business School, on the one hand, is to build out our inner innovation learning activity, in other words, building new online courses, which is highly experimental. And on the other hand, I'm trying to run our existing executive education business, which obviously is attempting to just sort of make lots of money for the school in order to help balance the books, if you see what I mean. And so the very practical challenges I face in doing that is literally to be able to sort of switch my persona from one meeting to the next, whereby in one meeting I am throwing away the budget I am experimenting, I'm encouraging people to try new things and do it quickly. And in the next meeting, I'm sitting down with my finance head and we are worrying about why, you know, one particular you know, product is 3% behind on its budgeted numbers uh, and what it needs to do to, to catch up on that and how we need to cut costs to make sure that the costs are in line with the revenues and so forth. So for me, that's the challenge that any such leader has to grapple with. You talk about switching these personas, but what helps you do this? Do, do you have a trick? Because I can imagine that it's very difficult to do so. Yes, and I guess my point is, it's not fair to ask people several layers lower in the organization to take that responsibility. In other words, I have to be very clear that with one team, it's all about experimentation uh, and adaptation and, and risk-taking, and the other team, I actually have to be a bit tougher on them. And I, I mean, the starting point for the trick is, first of all, figure out what your personal bias is, your personal predisposition. My personal bias is towards experimentation and freedom. And so, because that's what I gravitate towards, I've got to work doubly hard when I'm working with my, shall we say, my more traditional business to make sure that I'm doing it right. And the best way to do that, I find, is to make sure I've got a number two in that organization who is, shall we say, holding the line, if you see what I mean. So, you know, everyone has a, a bunch of things they're good at and things they're less good at. In the meetings where I need to be a little bit more narrow and, and, and a bit more short-term focused, a little bit less open to experimentation and mistakes, I need somebody who is going to help me with that. I've got a very good CFO. She makes sure that we do things right. So that's, that's the trick, is basically just to make sure that you've got the right people in the room with you to support which persona you are taking at a particular time. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that when you talk about this personal bias, you say that you're more experimentation and freedom driven. It seems to me that if you're this type of person, that it maybe is a little easier to, to steer towards the efficiency than when you're a super efficient driven person who needs to become more creative and a bit more experimentating. Is that not 
a more difficult switch? It's a very good point, actually, and it, and it raises a couple of interesting lines of conversation. You know, first of all, um, that is true. It is definitely easier to veer back towards trying to be efficient and conformist than the opposite. It's very difficult for somebody whose natural way of working is, well, that's how we do it around here. And have we thought <laughs> through all the consequences? And have I checked up with the right people? It's much more difficult for them to suddenly open up and say, yeah, let's throw the rules out and let's try something new. So that leads to, I think, a hugely important point, which is, you know, we should be populating our big organizations with more of these people who are, shall we say, natural entrepreneurs, or at least naturally a little bit more creative. And yet, of course, most big organizations do the exact opposite, right? Most big organizations have over the years, shall we say, driven out the entrepreneurial thinking and they've also driven out the entrepreneurial people because a lot of entrepreneurial people get very frustrated working in big companies and you know and I've, I've said this many many times but you know we've absolutely got to make more room for the contrarians the mavericks within our big organizations because if we're going to change how these big companies work we just need to find room for them. And, and if I think back about all the examples I've just given you of ING and NL and NG, at the heart of each one of those stories, you've got two or three really maverick people who, you know, for whatever reason, have got to positions of some seniority, almost despite the fact that they're actually quite entrepreneurial or creative people. They've seen an opportunity and they have, through their own personality and their own persuasion, been able to get the organization moving in that creative way. And there's not enough of those people in the big organizations today. Mm -hmm. So that's indeed a big challenge. So how is, is it as simple as organizations thinking, now let's hire rebels or <laughs> how, how can this change? It's, it's hugely difficult, right? Because, you know, this and this advice has been around for a number of years. We're hardly the first people to discuss it. I mean, I do actually believe that there's a bunch of wannabe rebels, wannabe mavericks hiding in many organizations. In other words, there are people who have learned to adapt to a situation and they've got a lot of these creative juices and they're, they're looking for the opportunity to bring them out. So, you know, just, just thinking through some of the people we've been talking about, not by name, but just in terms of their personalities, you know, they weren't always rebels. In fact, they were often people who, you know, did a pretty good job just following things through and, and getting promoted. So what we've got to do is, is surface those underlying sort of desires or passions for doing things differently rather than worrying that we just don't have enough of those people because as you say that's a very defeatist attitude to say well we've got nobody who's entrepreneurial here we've got to find the right ways of exposing them to new ideas sometimes this is done through training courses sometimes it's done by having a, a literally a chief executive him himself or herself who is giving people a license to do things differently and seeing what emerges you know so the chief executive the italian guy I, I i mustn't mention his name yet but the you know very charismatic thoughtful guy brand name company and his way of moving forward is he's he's deliberately just trying to shake up his people not telling them what to do but telling them we need to change fundamentally and he's going to see kind of what emerges from that and, and he's confident that out of that process he's going to get three or four of them raising their hands saying you know we can do this project or, or this initiative and that's that's for me is the is the way to do it i mean training helps but ultimately what we're trying to do is unleash a lot of those 
underlying talents which which are lying sort of you know hidden within organizations so we're looking for sort of sort of traces of evidence right we're looking for people who have shown in a small way you know that they've got neat ideas for doing things different i mean i i've written about this guy called ross smith at microsoft before so this is you know you can look him up on the internet you know and moss ross is um he's been in microsoft for 20 odd years he's in the world of, of software development and design and testing he leads teams who do boring testing of microsoft software and yet you know buried within that microsoft system he is a guy who is always trying new things you know he he's got a team of 80 people you know rather than doing the classical i'm going to reorganize after a particular product has launched he created a thing he called a we org w-e hyphen o-r-g where he got the team to make their own decisions about how they were going to organize themselves i mean classic kind of bottom-up self-management approach you know my, my point is you know this did not change microsoft in a fundamental way the point is that he was only able to do it because he built the trust of the people around him but it stemmed from his just personal desire for always trying to find new and better ways of doing things and and for me big companies shouldn't be looking skeptically at people like ross smith because actually they're the ones who are potentially the ones who can then take those ideas and scale them up and, and, and make a difference for the company as a whole um, and we do have to find by the way two types here it's worth bearing this point in mind we've got the ones who are genuinely maverick crazy you know elon musk types of people who are just fundamentally unreasonable um, those are the ones who are pushing and challenging the system, but often in a slightly destructive way. We've got to try to find a way of supporting them. But the means by which we do that is the second type of person who is often a little bit underappreciated, who are the, the ones who are smart enough to play the political system, but also flexible enough to be able to work with the mavericks. I mean, they're the kind of the translators, the bridges, who help keep the mavericks in the job and translate their ideas into something that the board, if you like, can get hold of. So, so we've got to keep our eye out for both of those types of people. They're both essential for helping our organizations to kind of reinvent themselves. Okay, great. Um, so now that the market is becoming increasingly uncertain and complex, the image of the like this big leader is, is transforming. Um, one of our former podcast guests, Heather McGowan, said um, we need leadership that dares to say, I don't know, let's find out. So the trouble is that most of the leaders are still really programmed to show that they are absolutely certain. So what's your take on that? So, yeah, I mean, I agree with her at least in part. I mean, in other words, the risk of assuming that our leader is a Steve Jobs-like figure who has somehow seen the future and has all the answers at his fingertips, the risk there is huge, right? Because for every Steve Jobs who was charismatic and visionary and correct, there's another five of them who are actually going to take you in the wrong direction. So I, I fundamentally agree with this notion that most of our leaders, most of our time, need to be trying to unleash the ideas and the talents of the people below them. You know, leadership is about unleashing talent, getting the most out of our people. The, the only caveat I will add to that is, 
and this is a sort of an un uh, unattractive truth in some ways, is that the big tech companies that are succeeding today, from Apple to Amazon to Microsoft to Google, you know, they all, in their own way, have leaders who are are actually quite autocratic. I mean, I'm going to take Microsoft and Satya Nadella into a different category. But if you look at Mark Zuckerberg and if you look at Jeff Bezos, they have a very clear sense of what they're trying to do. And so the way I, I reconcile this dilemma between, you know, we want leaders who pull people along, but we also want leaders who are able to steer us and give us a sense of direction. The way I resolve this is, is again to say that our leaders have to be smart enough to do two different things. In other words, they have to spend most of their time trying to pull out the ideas from the people around them to say, I don't know the right way forward. But then once in a while, they've got to be prepared to actually take a look at the ambiguity in a situation and say, even though I don't know for sure the right way forward, it is actually my responsibility to take a position here and to say of all the possible ways forward, this is the one we're going to choose. Because of course, if, if they don't take that position in a period of ambiguity, what happens is that lots of different people fight with lots of different ideas and we never end up getting to any particular solution that works. So I, I do worry that we've got this huge tension here and that most leaders will fall into one or other mode without being able to reconcile the two. So let's talk technology and, and leadership a bit. So how has technology changed the way leaders develop and adapt their strategy? So how can they really develop a strategy that's both stable and agile at the same time? Technology is making it possible to do lots of things much better than before, right? I mean, you know, the whole big data explosion uh, and, of course, now artificial intelligence on top of that means that a lot of activities can be done in a much more automated, more efficient, indeed more effective way. As an executive, our job is to harness that and to use it to make sure that we don't waste time doing run-of-the-mill basic operational stuff and to free up our time to do the much more difficult, shall we say, human things, if you see what I mean. So, you know, we've always got to make this distinction between intelligence, which actually computers have in, in some sort of basic problem-solving sense, on the one hand, and consciousness and subjective experience on the other. And computers are very good at doing narrow intelligent things and they're very bad at trying to, shall we say, replicate human consciousness and subjectivity. So as leaders, our job is to gravitate even more than we are doing right now to those things which our computer systems will essentially never be able to do. And for me, that's things around creativity. It's things around deep intuition built on experience. It's stuff around making balanced judgments, weighing up very, very different types of challenges and coming to decisions. So that's how I would like to see technology being harnessed to help executives make better judgments and better decisions in the future. Okay. So you talk about artificial intelligence and um, that it's still a very narrow intelligence, but is this not coming because there, there's a lot of companies that are busy with making a creative AI that writes music and, and writes journalistic pieces and I know we're not there yet because most of these things are when you listen to them or when you read them are extremely funny and not very good, but are we not getting there? Look, you, you can never say never, right? Because one thing we know for sure is that 
AI is becoming better on many dimensions on an exponential basis, right? I mean, we, we never thought that autonomous driving would happen in our lifetimes, and it looks like it's going to. So the point I would make is that, look, we do see creative AI, right? We see AlphaGo becoming the world's best Go player with some clever strategies that no one had ever seen before. We do see... AI, you know, creating music and drawing pictures. But just, but we've got to remember that all of that so-called creativity is within a frame of parameters which were defined by the inputs to that system. Because all AI is doing, of course, is it's actually essentially interpreting, uh, you know, a set of data, a set of information that has been given to it uh, as an input. So, Undoubtedly, we're seeing creative solutions coming from the world of AI, but those creative solutions can only ever be as creative as the parameters that are given to it. And of course, what humans are great at doing is, is a sort of moving beyond those parameters and making linkages to things in a completely different part of the world. So I think it may come. Uh, I do. Um, of course, you, you, you can't really resolve this. You can say, you know, within the next decade, we're not going to see those fundamentally creative solutions to problems that humans are better at. But, you know, we are in the process of changing the way that humans work. Um, I was at a speech yesterday by this famous guy, Yuval Harari, the guy who wrote Homo Deus, the best-selling book. You know, and he makes the case that, you know, increasingly now, humans, Homo sapiens, are, are going to have a second brain. We're going to have essentially this, you know, this additional brain to complement our genuinely human brain. And that those two brains are going to be working essentially in synchronization with one another. And, you know, we're going to be doing stuff which makes us almost like godlike in his expression through, you know, the way that humans have traditionally seen themselves. So I, I don't know quite where we come out. I am very comfortable saying that within the next five or ten years, all this creative stuff is in the realms of science fiction. And our job as business executives is to harness the stuff that we know is going to work rather than the stuff that might be coming down the track. <laughs> so what I find really striking is that when, when it comes to, to um, AI, there's a lot of talk about algorithms replacing many jobs, right? But they almost never talk about algorithms replacing leadership jobs. Um, and you, you talked about this already, uh, probably because it's, it's more high end, there's more need for creativity. But why is it that when people look forward down, down the line into the future, they think, well, this job and this job, but ne almost never the CEO or leaders? What, why is that? I mean, look, partly it is um, sort of self-defense mechanisms, right? You know, it's, it's comforting to think that we have security in our roles. But of course, that's a, that's a lousy reason. I mean, a slightly better reason is that true judgment, uh, weighing up of incommensurable pieces of data is way beyond the bounds of artificial intelligence at the moment, right? Now, the point to remember, of course, is that the actual number of people who have to do those really difficult judgments is actually tiny. So I think I, I'm completely comfortable that the very top end of big organizations, those executive judgments have to be human. But, but I think we're missing an important point, which is that, you know, you take a professional service company like a law, law firm or an accountancy firm, right? You know, they have all sorts of executive roles all the way through, or at least professional roles all the way through. And you can make a strong case that the vast majority of those roles 
are actually going to be automated uh, and simplified and, and computerized, you know, in our lifetime. So I think that's the bit that we're we're not being completely honest about is that big chunks of currently quite senior roles are going to be to be going away, and, and we're definitely not prepared for that. So that's that's where I come out on that issue. And of course, on the other end of the, of the spectrum, if you like, um, I think most people agree that a lot of caring roles, you know, social services type roles, nursing type roles, uh, a lot of those types of roles are also going to be the last to be lost to automation because obviously human relationships are things that computers are pretty rubbish at. What are your favorite unknown corporate innovation cases? So which companies have been really great at reinventing themselves throughout the years, but never received enough credit for that? So look, I have made a sort of personal agenda, if you like, to try to find these sort of companies. And what you can't find is whole companies doing things in a creative hidden way. What you do absolutely find is individual cases. And over the years I've written, I, read, I mentioned Ross Smith earlier at Microsoft. I read a little case study about a guy called Jordan Cohen at Pfizer, a guy called Niraj Bhagavar at GE. I mean, over the years, every time I see somebody doing something really cool and innovative within a big company, I kind of write a case study about them. And so, and so you can go to my website or whatever and find these stories. But the trouble is, and perhaps this is the more important point, these things never scale because the, the companies, they don't deliberately ignore these cool ideas. But you know, such is the, the pressure to conform, such is the weight of sort of expectation around from investors that these people almost always, sooner or later, bump up against some sort of invisible ceiling where their ideas don't get taken forward. For big companies to genuinely kind of reinvent themselves may actually not be possible, but what is possible is for them to continue to strive to reinvent themselves. And in the process of continually pushing on all these different dimensions we've been talking about, they can at least make sure that they don't fall behind. They can at least make sure that they stay current. And for me, that is that is actually a battle worth fighting. That's a really controversial view, saying that it's actually not possible because everybody is, is looking for that answer and they know there's no silver bullets, but they all are trying out there. So, And I, I hope that you've got the point that even though I'm <laughs> pragmatic that it's not possible to completely reinvent, I'm still optimistic that it is worth continuing to do that because the alternative of kind of giving up is even even more demoralizing, right? The alternative is you genuinely do become the next Kodak or the next Nokia. So you've got to do all this stuff and yet also be comfortable with the fact that that's not going to take you to kind of completely new pastures. You've just got to do it as almost as, as running as fast as you can, if you like, just to stand still. So what's your absolute favorite go-to if you want to be inspired? Could be a podcast, TV show, a person, written medium, company, or even a place. So where do you go when you need a fresh perspective? Yeah, I mean, I love listening to you know, genuine thought leaders. I mentioned Yuval Harari, who I saw yesterday, and Neil Ferguson, a Scottish guy now based in North America. I heard him last week. And, and when, when you hear these genuine thought leaders, you know, your mind starts racing. And I, and I absolutely love that stuff. Um, so that's one answer. And find podcasts of people like that. 
And in terms of, of, of more broadly, I, I, mean, I deliberately cast a very wide net. I deliberately like to listen to news stories and podcasts outside of my field. I go into political economy. I even deliberately go to, you know, the the news which I hate. You know, I, I will go on to, you know, the uh, Breitbart, which is this Donald Trump supporting far right website in the US to understand their points of view. I, I disagree fundamentally with everything they believe. But I believe that you have to understand these different points of view in order to come to a better understanding yourself. Okay, thank you. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us on the Net Nextworks Innovation Talks, Julian. And uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much. This was Nextworks Innovation Talks. Thank you so much for joining us. And follow us on nextworks.com if you're hungry for more innovation news and events.